Thank you, Jonathan. <clears throat> well, it is Palm Sunday today, a day in which we see a pattern of three words resembling this week, this, this Holy Week, this for now hundreds and hundreds of years. Christians all across the world have celebrated Palm Sunday. The plot twist of Palm Sunday and this Holy Week resembles very much what we see in the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Three words that, and I'm so happy to have our elementary students joining us today, so uh, we're grateful that you are here. And There's going to be three words to help us remember both a rhythm for this week and for the book of Jonah, chapter 1. So, boys and girls, would you participate me? And big boys and girls, would you join me as well? The first word is word. Very good. So the first word is word. This captures the first two verses and also what today is as Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a day in which the Scriptures, the prophecy, literally prophecy, things written down by prophets of what will come to pass. Zechariah 9.9 today is fulfilled in Jerusalem as the long-awaited King, O you daughter of, of Zion, O you daughter of Jerusalem, behold, behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So in Jerusalem, when Jesus came on this Palm Sunday as we celebrate it, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and, and the, the crowds, they look, they've seen the signs that Jesus have done, fulfilling the fullness of the demands of the Scriptures. He's miraculously healed people, but these miracles themselves are signs that point out who He is. He is the promised King. He is the snake crusher who's come to make all things right. He is the one that John the Baptist would look at and say, Behold, the one who takes away the sin of the world. He comes now to Jerusalem and the people lay their coats before this little colt carrying the King. They would go and cut down palm branches representing victory and lay them on the ground before Him. So we have this clear fulfillment of the Word of God. In the book of Jonah, the first two verses, God, who is righteous and holy, has given His Word. A Word of judgment that's going to befall upon the Ninevites, the capital city of the Assyrians, that have long battled and waged war with Jerusalem and Israel. A Word is given. Judgment will fall upon you. The prophet of God in Jonah, he will reject this word. So our second word is wailing. Can you say that? Wailing. Very good. Wailing. Not like harpooning whales. That's probably not even appropriate to say. But not wailing, but like wailing out against something, rebelling against something. So right away in verse 3, the plot shift hits in the book of Jonah. And heartache is going to come to Jonah and the sailors, the mariners. Because of the wailing that happens when people reject the Word of God and choose their will rather than the perfect will of God for them. That's what we see this week of Holy Week. We begin with a clear fulfillment of the Word of God on Palm Sunday, and then as we move on through the week, we see at the Lord's Supper that takes place, Jesus takes the Passover meal and He reinstitutes it. And by the way, you probably saw, if you're a believer, if you've turned from sin and placed your faith and trust in Christ, today, the last Sunday of the month, it's Family Sunday, but it's also the day in which we observe the Lord's Supper. So if you didn't get one of those, we'll be, have a server to be able to pass those out in a little bit at the end of our service. So do be aware of that. But after the Lord's Supper, we see Judas leaves and sets his heart already. Satan enters into him. He sets his heart to betray Jesus, to hand him over. We see Good Friday comes 
and the wailing of the Son of God upon the cross who became sin for us, the righteous one. For the Father would be pleased to crush Him, wailing. And yet, as what we see in our text today in Jonah in verse 16, the mariners, these pagan sinners, would become worshipers of the Lord God. And so too, we see next week on Resurrection Sunday, the King has risen, and we worship Him in spirit and in truth. So, word, wailing, and worship. Let's say those three words together. Word, wailing, and worship. This reflects our testimony. This leads us on our one central big idea today, a a prayer as we leave this place that let us learn from Jonah chapter 1 and from the very flow of this week to walk in the Word of the Lord and rest in His perfect will and good purposes. I can tell you today, what is God's will for your life? It's that you would turn from sin and trust in Christ. It's that as believers in 1 John, it's very clear that Christians are a confessing people. It's what we do as a community. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But though we've been adopted by faith in Christ, we never stop being a repenting people, a turning people, not being resaved, but cleansed before the Lord. Our fellowship with God. We have fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with the Father. And that fellowship is made complete in Christ, John tells us. So you have fellowship with the Lord, believer. And God's will for your life is that you would walk in the commands that He gives. That's what we're calling here God's perfect will for your life. His perfect will is is to, to obey and abide in Christ, to make disciples, to turn from sin always and to trust His way. For kids to honor and obey your parents, to abide and choose the straight way of the Lord, the way of the Word of God. But what we see in our text, in the book of Jonah, and really in history and in our lives, is that when we kick against the Word of God, when we choose our way, when we don't walk by His Word, we will wail as we kick against the goads. We see this in verses 1 through 6 and verses 11 through 15. When we don't walk by His Word, we will wail as we kick against the goads. Proverbs 15.10 tells us there is severe discipline for those who forsake the way. God disciplines those that He loves. And I want you to write down a reference. We're not going to read it, but I want you to write down Acts chapter 26, verse 14, because that's what I'm playing off here with this quotation of kick against the goads. I would ask you what a goad is, and some of you that don't know would probably be ashamed to raise it. But I want to encourage you, I did not know what a goad was. I was not entirely sure. I thought maybe I knew. So I looked it up. If you're like me and you weren't quite sure what a goad is, that is a goad. That's actually not an ox goad. That's an elephant goad because there's no open source Google images, apparently, of an ox goad. So if you have an ox goad, take a picture, post that on Google, help a preacher out when they come to Jonah chapter 1, okay? But that's an elephant goad, which I presume is the same idea. It is the same idea. It's just a little bit bigger. Now, we use that word goading still. So a parent, you might think when you're trying to get your little kid ready and and they keep forgetting their shoes, you're kind of goading them along. The idea is you have a direction that you want them to go, and so you're having to goad them. This way, this way, this way. And kids, you're probably thinking when you are somewhere for longer than you want to be, and your mom or your dad is talking for way too long, and you're trying to goad them to get out of there. Come on, let's go. Do you want me to wait in the car, or what would you prefer here? You're trying to goad them and lead them. But rarely do we think of goading along from the perspective of the ox. 
or the elephant. And in Acts, we see that Jesus, as He comes to Saul, the resurrected and ascended Christ, He tells him, why do you persecute me? Because he's seen who the Scriptures, he's seen who Jesus is, he's seen that it's about Jesus, but he doesn't get it. His eyes are still blinded. And the Lord blinds him and brings him into this stumbling. He tells, how long will you, he says, how long will you kick against the goats of Christ, of the Word, of the perfect will of God? So you can imagine from the ox's perspective, the ox is not going to win that battle to kick against that thing. All it's going to do is bring heartache to the ox, discomfort to the ox. And that's what we see in the book of Jonah. Jonah hears the clear prescriptive, perfect will of God for his life, and he chooses his way instead. And the choosing of his way turns the sailors, the mariners' lives upside down. In our lives, we can be tempted to do that as well, can't we? And it leads us to say, thank you, God, that your ways are greater than my ways. I want you to think about this from this word perspective from the very beginning. We're creation. He's creator, which means we're limited. We're limited in strength. We're limited in days. We're limited in health. We're limited in time. We're limited in resources. And God's word calls us to be wise and good stewards of our time, talents, and treasures, all those things. But logistically, Jonah doesn't make that much sense to me. Remember when God gave a word to Sodom and Gomorrah? These wicked cities? Who did God send? Did He send one of His prophets? No. He sent two angels. I mean, I measure things oftentimes by efficiency. So, boom! I mean, like a millisecond. I don't know how quick an angel is. Probably pretty quick. Quicker than Jonah, fair to say. But God, I mean, think about it. Judgment's going to come upon the Ninevites. In 40 days, the capital city of the Assyrians is going to be wiped out. But God chose to send a hard-hearted Hebrew prophet to give the message of impending judgment and exactly who the Lord is instead of two angels. Now, certainly, logically, we would look and say, I don't know what you think about me, but there's no way this would be as memorable today compared to if we were able to find an angel as a guest preacher and he was to preach this sermon. Right? You would never forget that. It'd probably be terrifying, but you would never forget that. So logically, we would look and say, if, if we want the Ninevites to repent, surely God should just send an angel. Not only is it quicker, but it's probably more powerful than an apathetic eight-word sermon that Jonah is going to preach. And yet, in God's kindness and wisdom, He sends this Hebrew man, this prophet, who even if he obey, obeyed the, the Word of God for him to go, it still would have taken him probably well over a week, even if he traveled by animal. Yet God is so kind and wise that He's going to work out this situation. Though Jonah's responsible for his rebellion and his sin, He's going to bring the Ninevites to repentance He's going to show mercy upon them. And along the way, we see in our text today that He brings salvation to these mariners who are minding their own business, going the opposite direction to Tarshish. That's how great our God is. And so, believer, you can be comforted this morning to know that His ways indeed are greater than your ways. And if you don't know Christ today, you can be grateful that you're here today 
to know that this book is a picture of how God works through so many things that seem ordinary. A wind comes, so a storm happens. A worm comes and eats a plant. The sun beats down. So many things that seem normal. And yet God is behind all of it, accomplishing His good purposes. That's the good news that we have. When I say behind it again, God works in this way, even through the hard-heartedness of Jonah. This is good news for us. But Jonah's rebellion happens early. It's verse 3. So if we're looking at Jonah, some 1,300 plus words, we're in verse 3 when rebellion happens. So I, I asked, you know, one of the things that makes film so powerful is the, the music score behind the film. You could take your favorite film, and if there was no music score behind it, it would be uncomfortable. It'd be boring. I think this isn't the same movie that I loved. And so I asked our own uh, maestro, our own Dr. Grabowski, I said, can you give me an example of a song that, that really starts off, I mean, just boom, gets right into the drama. And then eventually, at some point, it shifts to peace really quickly. And he, and he told me, he gave me the mindset, he said, often the moods that most conductors do, they, they really want to lean in and draw out their mood shifts. And they like to build up the drama until this, boom, big climactic scene. And he gave me a, a song. You can write it down. I want you to listen to it on your way home. You can pull it up on YouTube on your way home. Not now. Uh, but you can pull it up. And it's Mascorgi's Night on Bald Mountain. And I butchered his name. So you music students all corrected me just now. But it starts off just dramatic. And as you listen to it, I want you to imagine around the seven and a half minute mark when it gets calm, I want you to imagine that's verse 16 of this chapter one. When Jonah's body goes splash into the water. See, God sends his word and the rest of the verses in chapter one are marked by wailing against the word of God. I want to ask you a question. How much of your life and my life and our heartache comes because we logically perceive our way is better than God's clear, given, perfect will for our lives? If we're married and we choose to do things based upon what seems logical or effective instead of God's word for our life, or parenting, or goals and work and classes or taxes or anything in our life that we balance and say, yeah, but this seems better for me. The heartache and the wailing that occurs is always more broad than we can imagine. This cost Jonah. This literally cost Jonah. It tells us in verse 4. It gives us an interesting detail. Do you see that? Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. And he could have just told us that Jonah got on a boat and went to Tarshish. So remember, geographically, the rebellion, he's supposed to go this way, and instead he gets on a boat to go this way. But before he's allowed to get on this boat for this expensive trip, some 2,500 miles away, it says that he paid for it himself. So, so Jonah is going to pay for his rebellion, and so are the sailors. But he also literally pays to run away from the presence of the Lord. I want to ask you a question this morning. Where are you at in relation to the Lord? Where has your last several months been? We can look like many things. We can, we can always look good on the outside, but... Have you been in a season of running from the presence of the Lord? 
God is so good and so kind that He sends the storm that stops the rebellion in its tracks. Now put yourself on the boat. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been around? It's a good feeling to be in a group dynamic and somebody in the group has been there before, isn't it? They're a professional. They're the expert. They're the doctor. They've seen this before. They're the veteran. They're wise. And when you're the new person on the block, the new guy or the new girl, and you start to get panicked because it's not following the playbook, and you look at them and they're calm. Doesn't that feel good? But what happens if you look at the professional and the professional is not calm? Here's a tip, by the way. When the professional and the one in charge start saying, it's okay, it's going to be okay, this is okay, it's probably not okay. And they're panicking. What are the sailors doing? The professional sailors, these mariners. What are they doing? The storm is so strong. What are they doing? They're not putting an awkward like, it's okay. They are crying out to their gods. I mean, heaven forbid, but if we were on an airplane and the stewardess we're all crying out to God, and the pilot got on and said, whoever your God is, please pray to Him right now. That is not a plane any of us want to be on. And that's what's happening. They've done everything in their might, and they've reassessed all their priorities, and so much so, they cry out to their God, nothing happens. And what do they do? They start throwing off all the precious cargo. I mean, they would be in trouble for this. But their lives, they know... Who cares if we throw away these worldly possessions if we get just a few more moments of life before this storm takes us? Isn't it amazing how God uses death or the threat of death to bring every man and woman to believe what Jesus told us in Mark 8.36? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? The sailors gain an accurate perspective of the value of worldly goods compared to losing their very life. Every one of us in this room will come to that reality. Either by God's grace now and becoming aware of our sin and the, the, gra- the gravity of such offense against a holy God or upon our deathbed. Everything is aligned for the creation when they prepare to meet their Creator. The sailors, nor Jonah, have rest apart from Yahweh. You see what the sailors did? They cried out to their gods in vain. They cried out with all their might, but it didn't matter because their gods are not the one true God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Yahweh, the Lord God. The triune God. They do not know Him. And they have no peace. Neither does Jonah have peace. Now it says that he's sleeping, so much so that they address him and say, what are you doing, sleeper? Like, how could you sleep through this? This is crazy. Why? Because he's been running with urgency from God for so long, he's exhausted. He doesn't sleep because he has peace. He sleeps because he is drained. And so, beloved, we're reminded, take naps, they're good. And sleep, it's good. But we'll never find rest until we set our hearts on the perfect will of God for our lives. To rest in the finished work of Christ. To rest in the Lord. Now, we're not going to take the time to look at this, but I would really encourage you to write down this reference. 
Write down Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 through 27. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 through 27. You won't regret it. You will not regret this. What I want you to do is, is, is I want you to find time today or this week to read that text and note the similarities between this scene in the book of Jonah. Jesus' disciples, they cry out to God. Literally, they wake up Jesus. The sailors cry out to a wayward prophet of God. Jonah says, the only way this is ever going to stop is if you throw my body in that water. But Jesus, who is perfectly obeying the word of the Lord, He does all that the Father set before Him. He simply says, stop. And the storm stops. Beloved, our faith is not in each other. Our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in Christ alone, our hope of glory. Amen? This is good news for us. What a reminder that we see in our text that, that Jonah, we can literally say, is tired from running from God. What about you? The drama only builds louder and louder. So these mariners, they, they don't yet know the Lord, but they hear this charge by the storm that the judgment of God has come for them. And they're so fearful that they wake up Jonah and they ask him a question. I want you to note these similarities. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, Adam in particular, the head, Adam sins against the given word of God. And what do they do? They flee. And what does God do to bring about for their sake the awareness of sin? He says, where are you? Now, did God lose Adam and Eve? You're like, ah, I should have turned my iPhone app on to track their, ah, where'd they go again? No, he's all present, all knowing. He knows all things and holds them. They're held together by him. He asks this question to bring about to their awareness that they have shame and sin and the wages of sin is death and they fled. We see Adam and Eve's relationship, this first marriage, is brought with shaming and rejection. We see their kids murder each other, Cain killing Abel. God uses a question to bring about a confession of their sin and their whereabouts. How does God do it with Jonah? He gives the word, Jonah flees, God sends a storm and uses the pagan mariners, their pagan sailors, to ask Jonah, what's going on? <laughs> Who are you? And what does he confess? Look in verse 10. He confesses his sin. God uses Jonah, God uses the pagan sailors to bring about for Jonah an awareness of the rebellion of fleeing for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Never underestimate how God works in life with different literal physical moves to new places, life stages and changes and health to bring about people to come to a realization of where they are before the Lord and to bring new beginnings and life to those that will confess Him and draw back near to Him. That's what our God does. So we see, secondly, as we look at verses 7 through 10 and verse 16, that we can have good news because though the reality is none of us perfectly do the perfect will of God, that God is so great that we can trust that even 
in the Lord's permissive will. So his permissive will is when his creation sins, the Lord permits us to do so. We're accountable for it, full accountability upon men and women. But in his sovereignty, in his plan, and in his wisdom, and in his secret will of how all these things come about, look at this, he is achieving his good purposes and is turning worshipers of the gods into worshipers of the Lord God. This is good to remember that the Lord is not done with us. Perhaps you came this morning and said, I am, I'm just a mess up. We all have sinned against God. Our hope and our trust is in Him. And He is able, every one of us has testimonies here this morning that knows Christ. Of how we wailed against the Word and sinned against God, and yet God intervened in our life and brought us to newness of life, a hatred of our sin and a longing for Christ. Now we trust in Him. A newness of life. Now, verse 7, I want to be clear, is not prescriptive, okay? So look at verse 7. This is kind of funny. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots. So this is not like a how should I make decisions for my life? Let's get the dice out. It's not what this is saying. I think this is just one more element of how God, who is sovereign over the winds and the worm and the whale, is sovereign even over the pagans' desperate dice cast. And it points to Jonah being the very reason that they're terrified. Now, in 1 Kings 18, you can add this to your homework list. This will be on the final, so make sure you get to this. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we read about the false god Baal and his 450 prophets, sadly, in Israel. And they go up on Mount Carmel. You might say Mount Caramel. Caramel, Carmel? Caramel, Carmel? That was like a groan. That was like a pain laugh. That was, this is, I should not have carried that over into this service. I am grieved by that. So that's enough. It's enough from you. Okay. So in 1 Kings 18, we see that they go up on the mountain. And they make these sacrifices. And what do the pagans do? The, the, these pagan priests to the false god, to this demon, Baal, they, they call down, they build this altar, and they cry out. They actually start mutilating themselves to get the false god's attention. Elijah he mocks them, right? Hey, maybe he's in the restroom. He didn't hear you. And then, what does Elijah do? He simply prays to the Lord God. And the Lord brings down fire and consumes the altar and licks up the water around it. That's kind of like what we see here, isn't it? These pagan mariners cry out to their gods with all their might, and they row with all their might, and it does nothing. And the wayward prophet Jonah says exactly what needs to be done. And it's done. His foolishness becomes their crisis. But God uses their little literal crisis to become a crisis of faith and to deliver them from His just wrath. Never underestimate believer, even in a season of waywardness, how God can still use it if you will just but look up and cry out to Him and speak about who He is in the circumstances and with the people you find yourself around. They find out that it's Him. The dice land upon Him. And they ask Him four questions. Did you see that? 
Four questions, and he gives only two answers, but they're sufficient answers. Look what the questions. They want to know who the God is, because their God, they know, is powerless over the seas. They want to know who the true God is then, that they're going to have to give an account for in a matter of moments before the boat goes down. Jonah, what is your occupation? Jonah, where do you come from? Jonah, what is your country? And Jonah, and of what people are you? Jonah answers in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, i.e., my God is the God. He's not a regional God like Dagon of the Assyrians. He is the God above all. And they're struck with terror, for they realize two things. They do not know the God of the Hebrews, and they're about to meet Him. They've worshipped their gods and called out to them, and they're terrified. And look what they say in verse 10, what is this that you have done? Now this sounds like Genesis 12 and 13. In Genesis 12 and chapter 13, Abraham is going through Egypt and his wife Sarah is there and he's terrified of what they might do to him and them because she's so beautiful. And so Pharaoh comes and asks about her and he's like, oh, that's my sister. And then what does God do? God's like, no, 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 that's your wife. God sends plagues upon Egypt. And Pharaoh then comes and sees it's timed with when he took Sarah. He says, what have you done? He says the same thing that the pagan mariners say to the prophet of God. What have you done? A.K.A., why did you get on our boat if you were fleeing from the presence of God? Why didn't you get on somebody else's boat? Go buy your own boat. You're running from the true God of of the land and the sea and all things? And you got on our boat? That's what Pharaoh says. What have you done? Take Sarah back. Are you crazy? You lost your mind. Look what's happening to us now. Don't you fear God? The pagan mariners already fear God in a way greater than Israel's prophet. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. But it leads them to have to trust in a wayward prophet. So, what do they do? He says, This will stop when you throw me into the water. Let's pretend like we're the sailors for a moment. We don't know Yahweh, we do not know the Lord. And we just heard that his prophet, who's admitted, he's admitted that he's running from the presence of God. And now he's telling us to throw his body into the water, to kill him. All people are created in the image of God, and they they hear this, and what do they do? They're moved to terror, but they do it anyway. And what happens? It hits the seven and a half minute mark of the song. Peace and calm. In verse 16, they respond by making vows to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the Hebrews becomes their God. 
They make a sacrifice to them. Now they're, they're going back, so we don't know if this is how long. Did they do it right there on the boat, or did they go back to Joppa and then to Jerusalem and make a sacrifice? It doesn't give us those details, but it gives us the heart of the matter that their hearts are broken for their sin, and they commit their lives to the Hebrew God, though they are not Hebrews. He brings them into worshipers. That's how great our God is. So who's the hero of the story? Is it Jonah, the prophet of God? No. And you could say, but these sailors wouldn't have come to Christ or come to the Lord, if come to Yahweh if he would have been obedient from the beginning. Sure, they would have. God would have worked it. He's responsible for his disobedience. In Acts chapter 4, just as the Jews who killed Jesus, Peter says, are responsible for the rebellion and our sin. The hero is not the prophet. Is the hero the sailor? Certainly not. They're the recipients of God's merciful kindness and grace. Who's the hero? Yahweh, the Lord God, who brings salvation and deliverance by His perfect and permissive will, bringing worshipers of a false god to worshipers of the true God, to give them a hope and a future and a life in His works. My question to you this morning as we come into our next steps is you will see Him face to face. Does that move you this morning to a worshipful heart? Or to a heart of woe and wailing. And if you will but turn and trust Christ, you will find a sure Savior, a sure hope, a God who is gracious and merciful, abounding in loving kindness. Entrust your sin and entrust your life and your future to Him. Isn't He good? Word, wailing, worship. Next step, number one. As a believer, where do I have true peace where others do not? Would you thank God for His loving kindness? Consider that this morning. If you know Christ, where in your life do you have peace? That if you didn't, you would only have a pseudo, a false peace. And just let that flow from thanksgiving that we'll sing in our song of worship after we observe the Lord's Supper in just a little bit. Just with, with hearts full of thanksgiving this morning and peace in God. Give Him glory and thank Him for that. Number two, is there a portion of my life that would reflect a, a kicking against the goat of God's Word? This morning, confess it to God and pursue accountability towards God's perfect will. At the end of our service, after our congregational prayer, there'll be leaders up here that would love to pray with you and encourage you and, and help you walk in steps of accountability. But also, if you don't know Christ, and today is the day that you give your life to Him, come and share that with us. You can always mark that on the Connect card as well. We'll follow up with you this week. But the point is, take a next step in the Lord. Abide in Him. Confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you. Number three, will you commit to share your testimony of the hero's work in your life with someone this week, this resurrection week? What a great opportunity to share how the great hero of creation has impacted your life. Share your testimony with someone how the Lord has worked in your life. And fourth, in a short amount of time, this story has gone from word to wailing to worship. This, as we've discussed, is the pattern of Palm Sunday. From Palm Sunday and the fulfillment of the Word of God to Good Friday and the shedding of Christ's blood to worship. Jesus' physical body would raise again a new glorified, resurrected body. So as we move into this time of the Lord's Supper together, 
If you're not a believer, if you've not trusted in Christ, this is not for you. This actually in 1 Corinthians comes with a warning that you should not partake of this. But our hope and prayer for you is that you would turn from sin and place your trust in Christ and profess Him. Be like, in this way, these mariners that come to the Lord and profess their hope and their trust in Him. For as believers, this is a confession that our hope and trust is in Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is our forgiveness. He is our life. We don't do this as a simple memorial like we would at a, at a, at a, at a, at a loved one who's died memorial service that looks simply behind. But we do this in a reality that Jesus died and defeated death and rose again and He ascended bodily to the right hand of the Father and He intercedes for us. And this gathering, this ordinance, it builds our faith as the Lord reinstituted the Passover meal. That we're to proclaim the Lord's death as, until He comes. As we are participants of the new covenant made in Christ's blood. This is a gift for us. So believer, if you came this morning limping in in your sin, realize that you are welcome because of what Christ has done on your behalf. You have a seat at the table because of Jesus. What a humbling, beautiful testimony that builds our faith together in the Lord. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as you take the first top film off, As believers, we look forward to a day when we will eat and drink with Him forever. We rejoice that He has paid the cost of our wailing, that the Father would be pleased to look upon and to crush Jesus for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to the church, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. As you open the cup, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In Romans 5, 6, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. In the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let's pray before we respond in song. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. You're perfect and gracious, merciful, abounding in loving kindness. You keep your promises. And so what gives us hope today and and a surety of forgiveness of our sins is because we trust you by your word. We thank you for our faith. We thank you for the joy that we have to partake of this, to live in a place where we have brothers and sisters in Christ in the same room that we can partake of this gift of the Lord's Supper that you give us. We thank you, God, that you send us out to live lives of response. You've given us each unique relationships and friendships and places of ministry to walk forward. We thank you, God, that you're not done with us. 
We thank you, God, that you're making all things new. God, we pray you would give us boldness to share of you, the great hero, the author and perfecter of our lives. We give you glory and thank you for the hope that is assured in Christ. In Jesus' name, all God's people said together, amen. Would you stand with me as we respond in song?